Welcome to New Hope Church's Sermon Series Podcast. The following message was recorded at our in-person services on Sunday, November 7th, 2021. Visit New Hope PDX to download teaching notes or to watch the full-length service. This week, Pastor John Rosensteel is joined by special guest, Dr. Richard Lindroth, to discuss God's creation and our role as its caretaker. Dr. Lindroth is a professor of ecology in the Department of Entomology at University of Wisconsin-Madison. His expertise lies in global change ecology and forest ecosystems. Our scripture reading for the day is Genesis chapter 2, verses 4 through 15. All right, good morning. How's everybody doing? Great, good to see everybody. I, I've discovered throughout my life that I feel most human and most connected to God when I am in the wilderness or when I'm backpacking in the wilderness. Anybody else, backpacker, really loved outdoors, that kind of thing? Yeah, I, I went backpacking for the first time when I was 16 in high school, never really did much camping prior to that. And something, it just evoked something in my soul. And I, as a practice, as a spiritual rhythm, I've tried to, over the last 10 to 12 years, backpack every summer for a week in a national park or a national forest because it evokes worship in me. It's, it's, like, it's like walking through God's art gallery. That's kind of how it is for me. And there's some pictures that are coming up of some of my trips. Uh, there'll be times that I'll turn a corner and see a mountain or a sunset or a river or a lake and I feel so close to God. Uh, we're, we, we, uh, America's got a lot of great ideas we've come up with throughout our history. We could list them. I think one of America's best ideas ever was the National Park, National Forest System. Uh, it's incredible. John Muir, back in the late 1800s, follower of Jesus, I think he did it and he went before Congress to say, we have to do this because I think he took his Bible seriously. And that's what we're gonna talk about today. We're in a series called The Good Life, and we're talking about how the bigger, fuller gospel, not just that we die and go to heaven when we die, which is true, but the gospel so much more than that, how that bigger, fuller gospel puts claim upon our life and sets right things in our life and our world. It sets right our relationship with God, absolutely. It sets right our relationship with one another, absolutely. And today, this is what we're gonna talk about, it sets right our relationship with the earth. And we're gonna talk about how followers of Jesus are called to care for God's creation. Now, uh, saying that you're immediately getting tense, I can read it in your body language. You're like, mm, I don't know, in church, to talk about such a subject. Let me, let me frame it up a little bit. I'm gonna be, this is gonna be a little bit different uh, sermon today. You can see behind me, it'll be different. If you're new to New Hope, you may have never seen me do this. If you've been around for a while, I do this all the time. I'm gonna be interviewing one of my friends, uh, Dr. Rick Lindroth, who is a, a world-renowned ecologist and scientist. He's also a deeply devoted follower of Jesus. And we'll be having a conversation about uh, Jesus followers and our call to care for God's creation. Now I was reading a couple surveys that just came out and they said uh, how you feel about climate and climate change and conservation and all that, the number one correlation is what political party you're in. Now that's frankly lunacy. It's lunacy because of this, like, like this conversation comes down, if you're a follower of Jesus, it comes down to Bible scholars, that, that's me, people who study the scriptures, what do the scriptures say about it? Or it comes down to scientists, what do the scientists say about the world? Politicians are neither, and oftentimes they're not even really politicians, but that's a whole other subject. So, but we, find, we frame how we think about it through that lens. And so I just wanna set your minds at ease today. I've got no political agenda. 
Rick has no political agenda. We're here as followers of King Jesus to talk about what the Bible says about our call to care for the world and what the world is saying to us. Uh, I borrowed this from someone, but I like it a lot. And this is, if you're new to our church, just I've given you a heads up. This is kind of how we roll. Here at New Hope, we are not team donkey. We're not team elephant. We're team lamb. Amen? You like that? We need to get t-shirts like King Jesus, right? That cuts through all of it. And today's not a political conversation. And I'm not going to allow this thing to be hijacked. It's too important. So just know there's no agenda there. Uh, We're coming together as a Bible scholar and a scientist to have this uh, conversation. Um, Also, there's a rich, rich legacy of followers of Jesus uh, going all the way back to, uh, I mean, early times in Christian history, but going back to uh, a conference was held in 2010. It gathered thousands of all the, the most preeminent leaders in the world in South Africa to talk about how can we proclaim the gospel to the world. John Stott and Billy Graham and on everybody who was anybody was there. And they came up with three main points on how they can proclaim the gospel faithfully. Point three was caring for God's creation. So let me, as we get going, just to kind of set some of your minds at ease, let me quote Billy Graham, because you can't disagree with Billy Graham, right? You can disagree with Jesus, but not Billy Graham. I'm just kidding. All right, so here's what Billy Graham says. I think he says it really well. He says, why should we be concerned about the environment? It isn't just because of the dangers we face from pollution, climate change, or other environmental problems. All these, these are serious. For Christians, the issue is much deeper. We know that God created the world, and it belongs to him, not us. Because of this, we are only stewards or trustees of God's creation, and we aren't to abuse or neglect it. The Bible says the earth is the Lord's and everything in it, the world and all who live in it. When we fail to see the world as God's creation, we will end up abusing it. Selfishness and greed take over, and we end up not caring about the environment or the problems we're creating for future generations. That's what we're gonna talk about today. Let's pray. God, thanks uh, for the presence and power of your Holy Spirit with us, your people gathered, gathered throughout the city that you love so much, and this earth that you love so much. And God, we open our hearts to you. I realize with a conversation like this that some people are like on their heels a little bit or maybe defensive or may have a closed mind. God, we don't wanna be a community with any closed minds. We wanna be open to you. As your son says so often, do we have ears to hear? Help us to have ears to hear this morning. God, open our hearts and open our minds to what your spirit has to say to us through your word and through the wisdom of Dr. Rick. Uh, We love you and we praise you and all God's people said, amen. All right, we're gonna have Pastor Jess come up and read our scripture this morning. Genesis 2, 4 through 15. This is the account of the heavens and the earth when they were created, when the Lord God made the earth and the heavens. Now, no shrub had yet appeared on the earth, and no plant had yet sprung up. For the Lord God had not sent rain on the earth, and there was no one to work the ground. But the streams came up from the earth and watered the whole surface of the ground. Then the Lord God formed a man from the dust of the ground and breathed into his nostrils the breath of life. And the man became a living being. Now the Lord God had planted a garden in the east, in Eden, and there he put the man he had formed. The Lord God made all kinds of trees grow out of the ground, trees that were pleasing to the eye and good for food. In the middle of the garden were the tree of life and the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. A river watering the garden flowed from Eden 
From there, it was separated into four headwaters. The name of the first is the Pishon. It winds through the entire land of Havilah, where there is gold. The gold of that land is good. Aromatic resin and onyx are also there. The name of the second river is Gihon. It winds through the entire land of Cush. The name of the third river is the Tigris. It runs along the east side of Ashur, and the fourth river is the Euphrates. The Lord God took the man and put him in the garden of Eden to work it and take care of it. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks, thanks Jess. Uh, so we're gonna, we're gonna do some technological marvels here, Lord willing, and get uh, Dr. Rick Lindroth from Madison, Wisconsin here. Let's see if it works. Uh, pray with us. Hello, Dr. Rick. Can we give Rick a warm New Hope welcome this morning? Rick is, uh, this is the second time. We obviously had a service at, at another interview previously, so thanks, Rick, for, for serving our community this morning. I also want to acknowledge that this takes a lot to do this sort of thing, and at the same time, at 11 o'clock, is our live stream, so we have a ton of New Hopers at home watching live as well. I don't even know how all that works. There's so much stuff going on in cyberspace right now, but can we give a hand to our tech team for working hard to make this happen? So. So Rick, let me cue you up and then we'll, we'll jump into this so people know who you are. I've known Rick for about 25 years. I was at Blackhawk Church in Madison, Wisconsin for about 18 years. Rick's still there. Uh, Rick's wife uh, worked with me on, on staff for many, many years. Uh, his daughters were in my youth groups. I don't know if I messed them up. I don't know if it was like a good experience. Let's not, okay. He gave me a thumbs up earlier. So I think it's, it, it went well. So uh, they were in my, and then uh, we have a, a very personal relationship too. Um, Rick was an elder at Blackhawk and I was at a, as a young man looking for mentors and I've always really respected Rick. And so I approached him five or six years in and said, hey, will you mentor me? And he's like, what does that mean? What does that look like? And so for about uh, eight, nine years, we met every month at a Starbucks on University Avenue, and uh, we just talked life. And uh, not knowing how to do marriage, not knowing how to do parenting, not knowing how to do a budget, you know, all these kind of things. Rick is this older, wiser man, was really generous to me. So our relationship uh, goes deep. Uh, so let me, uh, let me uh, give you Rick's bio. I'm not being hyperbolic when I say that he is one of the, the leading uh, scientists in the world in his field. He's an ecologist and principally studies the effects of climate change on ecology. He got his PhD from University of Illinois. He's a distinguished professor of ecology at University of Madison, Wisconsin. Go Badgers. Uh, his area of expertise is global change ecology and forest ecosystems. That's really impressive. That's way better than like I'm a pastor. That's what I tell people. Uh, he's a fellow in numerous scientific organizations. He and his research group have published over 200 journal articles and book chapters. Uh, Rick is active at this church. He and Nancy have two adult daughters who I mentioned and three grandchildren. He enjoys road cycling, fly fishing, and reading. And then he hates that I'm mentioning this because he knows I will. But um, Madison, Wisconsin is, is the most educated city in America per capita. And Rick was voted one of the 20 smartest people in Madison. Uh, do you want to comment on that, Rick, at all? Yeah, I, I'll get back to you here, John, and, and simply say that uh, I actually was disappointed that I didn't make the list of 20 sexiest people. Still working on that. Coming back at me already. So I, yeah, I like it. Go. Well, maybe you're both, Rick. I don't know. We'll see. I don't know where that survey is. So, um, 
let's jump into it. I want people to kind of get just a brief sketch of how you got into what you're doing. You've been doing this for a very long time. I think if I, if I heard you correctly the other day, you're retiring next year, so congratulations on that. How did you get into science? Was it from from very young age? And then also, as you answer that, I think there's this idea that like we either have to follow Jesus or be into science. You can't do both. Um, so also share with us how each of those realms inform one another. How does your faith inform science? How does science inform your faith? Sure. Uh, so I had the great pleasure of growing up in a rural area in northern Illinois, and I described that upbringing as being a free-range kid. So I spent most of my time that I wasn't in school ranging, roaming around in the forests and fields around me. And I knew that by the time, I knew by the age of seven that I wanted to grow up and become a biologist. So um, this is kind of a straight shot right on through. It was never really much uh, debate in my, my own mind. Uh, I think uh, I, I believe that I'm a better scientist for being a Christian and a better Christian for being a scientist. So they're, they're not at all mutually exclusive. They're mutualistic. That is, they build and enhance one another. And just a, a couple of things. I think that my faith doesn't shape so much what I do as a scientist, but how I do it. So it shapes how I interact with other people. It shapes the attitude that I have, trying to adopt an attitude of worship while I'm doing my work. And it provides a check for my soul because science, as we all know, is extremely competitive and you have to be kind of driven to succeed, at least in the eyes of the world in that field. My science also shapes my faith in that it prompts me to pursue truth no matter where it leads, no matter how difficult that is. And it also means that I'm comfortable with mystery that I like to say I can hold competing views in my head at the same time and not demand resolution. I can sit with that discomfort because we, we do that all the time as scientists. So those are just a, a few insights. Great. We, we've talked about this before. Uh, I've kind of given my case, but I want to give you an opportunity to speak to this. I, I believe it's a pretty simple case, um, but let's, let's get this out of the way. Give us um, your best biblical case that followers of Jesus should care for God's creation. Right. So I think the simplest argument is that followers of Jesus are called to love what God loves and to care for what God cares for. And the creation around us was not our idea, right? It was God's idea, and he loves it. There, uh, there's a lot of uh, biblical um, texts that refer to his care for, his delight in the created order, and that we as disciples or followers of him are charged with caring for it. In fact, that was the first command given to people in uh, in the Garden of Eden, in the Adam and Eve story, is that they are charged to care for his creation. So I think one of the main points to make is that creation exists for God. It doesn't exist for us. And that the purpose of creation is to bring glory and praise to him. And then there is uh, this word rule uh, that was mentioned in your, uh, in your reading from Hebrews that says that the very first job of humans was to rule over God's creation. And that original Hebrew word is rada, which means to have dominion over or to care for or to nurture. And I think the best way to understand that rada relationship we are to have with the created order 
is to do so in the context of what it means to be image bearers of God. As his image bearer, we will treat things that we love and that he loves the same way that he treats them. That is with nourishment, with care, with benevolence, with self-sacrifice, not in terms of dominion in, in an extractive or dominating or um, trotting down sense. So there's that uh, component from the Old Testament. And then the New Testament tells us that all of creation is to be restored back into proper relationship with God. We know that the fall caused disruptions in our relationships with God, with ourselves, with um, my own relationship with my own self and my relationship with the natural world around us. And so as part of that bigger gospel that you've been talking about, everything is, is to be restored back into its proper relationship with God. And we as his disciples are called to participate in that process. So that means restoring our relationship with the earth as well as restoring our relationship with God and with each other. So there's a very quick synopsis. Yeah, as a biblical scholar, I give you an A plus on that answer. Well done. You know, I, I, you might be asking, like, why are we doing this today, John? Why, what's the, why are we, well, how can we not talk about this topic? Because we're talking about the bigger gospel. If we have a shrunken gospel that we're just saved by Jesus to wait to go to heaven when we die, then that gospel only makes us wait to die. That's basically what it does. But we've got a much bigger gospel than that. And heaven is coming to earth and so we're, we're called into restoring our original calling through God's spirit, being healed into that original call of being icons that we talked about, reflecting God, ruling on his behalf. And that includes our relationship with planet Earth. So just one or two uh, Psalms, they're all through scripture, but just to, to root it in the text, Psalm 24, 1, the earth is the Lord's and everything in it, the world and all who live in it. Another Psalm for every animal of the forest is mine and cattle on a thousand hills. I know every bird in the mountains and insects in the hills are mine. So as people are listening, I'm trying to think, Rick, like what, what our folks are, are thinking. And because this is a, a heavily convoluted topic out in the world and on social media and different news channels and this and that. So I think there's a lot of confusion for followers of Jesus, too. And one of the things I've heard is that, you eat, that, that to love the earth means that you can't also love people. And um, so or they're suggesting there's an inherent tension there. And I think of like stories that I've heard of like, well, in this one force, there's an owl you gotta save. So you gotta like shut down all the economy so people go out of work just to save the one owl. That's, that's crazy. Or people use the phrase tree hugger as a pejorative. Meaning if you're a tree hugger, you can't also love people and hug people. I mean, probably shouldn't be hugging too many people during a pandemic, you know what I'm saying? But you know, tree hugger is a bad thing, and you, that, if you're a tree hugger, then you can't love people. So talk about that. Like, I, it frustrates me, because I don't think it's true, but I wanna hear what you have to say about that. Right, so there is that tension, and, and I encounter it quite, quite frequently. I think it's largely a false dichotomy, we can love people as well as love and care for the earth. And in fact, I think one thing, if, if, uh, if anything, I would appreciate people going home with today is a better understanding of the fact that humans can't live separate from the environment around us. Uh, we are deeply, deeply embedded within and interactive with the environment around us. Every breath that we take requires a functioning, fruitful environment in the world around us. 
And so if we are to love people, we have to love for the environment that cares for them as well. And unfortunately, much of the environmental damage falls disproportionately on people who are impoverished and people who live in non-white communities. So creation care is very much a social justice issue. It's a pro-life issue. It's caring for people that in caring for people, we are also caring for the planet. And in caring for the planet, we're also caring for people. Gaylord Nelson, the founder of Earth Day, said it this way, that the economy is a wholly owned subsidiary of the environment. So we really can't have one that is healthy without the other. Great. I, uh, I love that phrase and I wholeheartedly endorse it. And, and we hear, you hear that a lot in church world that we're pro-life. And typically that means that we're, we're advocating for the life of the preborn, which, which I wholeheartedly believe in and believe that that's biblical. But also we should be advocating for the life of those that are actually born as well. And I think that this, uh, this topic is a pro-life topic. And so to, to, to couch in those terms, and then I love you kind of threw out the, the, the economic thing. I've heard that pushback as well, that if you're pro-Earth, uh, then you're going to like put the economy in a tailspin. And I've read just some recent things. I'm, I'm not an economist, but some articles that, that, sh that argue strongly that, I mean, we can sit back and see wildfires and storms and all these things that are coming and riverbeds going dry, that that will devastate the future economy. So I think there's, you can make a strong argument biblically that we have, but you can also make a strong argument that to love people is to love the world and to care for the world. And it's also gonna be good uh, for the economy. Let's get into another uh, misnomer. This is more on my side of the street uh, in the church world, but I know you and I have talked about this a lot and I believe it's a big misnomer. And I, I wanna talk about how our eschatology might affect our care for creation. And let me, let me describe that a little bit. The word eschatology, it comes from the Greek word eschatos, which is like the study of the last thing. So when we say eschatology in church world, what you're saying is like, what do you think about what's gonna happen in the future? Jesus coming back and all those kind of topics. And, and church people are like always really excited to talk about that kind of stuff. I just got done with a class on Revelation. It's, it's interesting, right? We should care about what is coming. But I think many followers of Jesus in the Western world have a, a very broken down eschatology. It's not biblically rooted. And I think one of the, the false eschatologies I hear that, trust me, this is not biblically true, is the idea that uh, because of we just go to heaven when we die, we don't have to care about how we live on the earth and we don't have to care about the earth and uh, that God is gonna uh, destroy the earth one day anyway, so who cares? Have you guys heard that, that argument? That, that, I think it resides deeply in us. And you might, if you know the scriptures, you might immediately go to the end of Revelation where it says that God will make a, a new heaven and a new earth. And, and, but here's the deal, that Greek word for new, it does not mean brand new, it means new in quality. So the best translation of that act is God will bring a renewed heaven and renewed earth. We know if we read our Bibles that we're gonna end up back on earth. This is our forever home, people. That's just what the Bible says again and again and again. And Jesus prayed that the, the kingdom of heaven would come to earth. So part of being called into the kingdom now is like, let's get going on that, that project. Am I missing anything, Rick? Or how would you, I mean, have you, have you encountered this? How do you think people's eschatology affects how they view the care of creation? Yeah, certainly have encountered that. In fact, I was involved for many years as an undergraduate with, uh, with a Christian organization. And we heard frequently that only, only two things are going to last forever. And that is God's word and God's people. And, and the, 
um, presupposition there was that everything else is going to burn and it's really a waste of our time to attend to. So, um, and, you know, there, there is the set of verses in 2 Peter 3 that talk about the earth being destroyed. There is a perspective among some Christians that that means that the earth is going to be entirely annihilated. I, I heard a, um, a televangelist just a few months ago re refer to this earth as being disposable. In other words, we're going to use it up, burn it out, and then move on. But I think a better understanding of the scriptures and one that is being promoted more and more widely by the theologians that I know of, N.T. Wright in particular, is that no, the earth is not going to be is not going to be destroyed. It's going to be renewed, and that the fires, the consuming fires that the Bible talks about, are refining, renewing fires, not annihilating destructive fires. So I think it's important for us to understand. First of all, that yes, we should care for the created order and the environment right now because of its impact on people right now. But this is not like a, a temporary thing. This is going to, going to be a, a home that exists far, far, far into the future. And you know how all that's going to work out, I, I don't have any, any semblance of understanding. But I don't think that we can treat this world as a throwaway because ultimately it's going to burn up and disappear. That does not seem to be the biblical case. All right, so the case we're making, if you're following along, is, and I think these are deeply rooted in Scripture, that we are called and renewed by the gospel back into our original creative mandate to, I would say, to be like curators in God's art museum, to take care of God's creation. Uh, and so that's what Scripture says. Secondly, to care for God's earth, that God loves deeply, as Rick said. We care for what God cares for. And at the same time, we care for people. So the great call of Jesus to love God and love people is represented in, in our, our care uh, for the earth. Also, as we care for the earth, we live into our future reality. One person I read said followers of Jesus should be earth keepers. I love that term, earth keepers. We're keeping it, we're gardening, we're bringing forth life, we're anticipating the kingdom of God coming here on earth. So that's kind of our case that we're laying out before you biblically. Let's switch firmly into your world. So I've, I don't have any expertise here, and this is why I'm bringing you in. I believe deeply in the biblical principle of chokmah uh, in scripture of wisdom, find experts. And I'm really, really confident in the statement uh, that this man here who's given his life to the subject knows more than anyone online or anyone in this room. So have some humility, even if you disagree with what he has to say at the end of the day, have ears to hear. He's an expert in this. And so Rick, I wanna give you an opportunity to uh, make, uh, I know you could talk for days and days and days on this, but a, a concise argument um, for human engineered climate change. And why I think this is important is if all those things I just said are true, and I think that they are, then we should care about the state of the world. We shouldn't have our head in the sand just hunkered down, right? We're the curators. We should know what's going on in the art museum. And if something we're doing is damaging the art, then I think we as followers of Jesus, first and foremost, above everyone else, should be concerned about this. So I'm gonna give you an opportunity with your accumulated wisdom, make a case, and I don't know if that's the right terminology, but human engineer climate change. Everybody agrees climate changes over time. But what's your argument, because I know you believe this. I know you've summed it up in 17 words, but we're gonna allow you to use more than that. So uh, take it away. Maybe describe what climate change is and then make your case for human engineered climate change. I'll, I'll jump in with some questions if I have them. Great, okay, thanks. So first of all, just a, a description of what climate is. Climate is not the same as weather. 
climate is what you expect, weather is what you get. So climate is simply an average of weather patterns, typically averaged over a period of 30 years. And those are things like temperature, precipitation, humidity, wind, et cetera. And climate change, of course, it would be shifts in those those long-term averages over time. So that's what we're talking about with respect to climate change. And anthropogenic or human-caused climate change is climate change that is caused by human activity particularly the burning of fossil fuels and release of greenhouse gases. So uh, you're right, there is a lot of controversy about whether anthropomorphic climate change exists. It's controversial in the world of of commerce, in the world of politics, in, in the world of religion and the church. The one area in which it is not at all controversial is the world of science, and that's the world that I live in. So let me just very briefly talk about climate change from the scientific perspective. This is what the science says, all right? And I'll summarize it in 15, 17 words. It's real, it's us, it's serious, it's going to get worse, and there is hope if we act now. So let me break those down just quickly, just superficially, and and talk about some of the basis for those comments. First of all, it's real. The Earth has warmed on average 1.1 degrees since the early 1900s, and there are thousands and thousands of indicators that the planet is warming. Reductions in sea ice, retreat of glaciers, warming of, of uh, of aquatic systems, of marine systems, increases in ocean sea levels, um, increases in land and atmospheric temperature. So thousands upon thousands of indicators. And we're also seeing more extreme events, more droughts, more floods, larger fires, more powerful hurricanes. So there's really no debate, no debate anymore about whether it's real. The debate has shifted to what's the cause? Why is this happening? And we oftentimes hear, well, the climate has always been changing. And that's indeed true. The climate has changed throughout the history of the world because of factors like volcanism, changes in solar insulation, that is the amount of light and heat energy the sun puts out, changes in the Earth's orbit, changes in the Earth's wobble on its rotational axis. All of those have led to significant climate change throughout the history of the Earth. But how do we know that? We know that because of the work of climate scientists. And what do those very same scientists tell us is responsible for the climate change that we're experiencing today? Well, they've ruled out every one of those factors. They are not contributing in a significant way. What the major contributing factor is, is the accumulation of greenhouse gases or warming gases in the atmosphere. And that's done that's achieved primarily by burning of fossil fuels. So, uh, you know, despite the fact that there are these zombie arguments that don't seem to go away, they keep coming back, that uh, the earth has always changed and these other factors might be driving it. Scientists don't buy into that. There's really one major factor and that is accumulation of greenhouse gases. Why is it that we cling to or, or would hope to say that uh, it's due to other factors? Because really, it's, it's, it's good that we know what the cause is and that we can do something about it, right? We cling to that, as Catherine Hayhoe would say, because to say that it's not us 
is much easier than to say it is us, but we're not going to do anything about it. All right. So, uh, so there's that's the case. It's us. It's serious. We we don't really need to go into this. Uh, you all know, uh, having living in the um, Pacific Northwest, how serious the wildfires have been. Climate change is touching every area of human endeavor. It's touching our. It's it's impacting our infrastructure, our agriculture, our ability to feed ourselves and the world. It's disrupting natural ecosystems. It's doing all kinds of negative damage to humans and the natural world around us. It's complicating health issues and healthcare. So it really is a very serious problem. And as I mentioned earlier, unfortunately, the consequences are falling disproportionately on those who are poor and the BIPOC um, communities. So in short, climate change is negatively impacting every facet of human activity. And people who refuse to grapple with that simply won't understand the 21st century going forward into, into the future. So it's serious. Unfortunately, it's going to get worse. The climate change that we're experiencing now is not a consequence of greenhouse gas emissions that have come about in the last 10 to 15 years, but because of our greenhouse gas, gas emissions decades ago. That's because it takes decades for the climate to adjust to the perturbations that we're constantly inflicting on it. The Paris Climate Agreement of 2015 settled on two degrees C as the upper limit for warming. We've already done 1.1 and there's another half degree baked into the system because of these latency effects. And uh, they, they put an aspirational goal out of 1.5 degree change. Well, we'll probably blow by that 1.5 degrees by the year 2050, at least, if not earlier. And to stay within the 1.5 degrees means that we're gonna have to cut our greenhouse gas emissions in half within the next nine to 10 years. And that's a, that's a major undertaking. There are basically three responses that we have to climate change. We can mitigate, that is, we can, re we can reduce the rate at which climate change is occurring. We can adapt. We can do things like build levees, move cities inland, breed drought-adapted plants, crops, and we can suffer. That's really the three options, mitigate, adapt, and suffer. And to reduce the suffering means that we really need to act now to mitigate and adapt. So there you go. Uh, we touched it on everything, but the last comment on right. hope, which we'll That's come back around to. That's all really, really depressing. Let's pray. Thanks for coming today. <laughs> um, we're going we're gonna to get to hope. Uh, Rick serves uh, on, with an organization called BioLogos. I'm a humongous fan. Tons of world-renowned scientists from all over the world that love Jesus, love God's word, make up BioLogos. And they're bringing together the partnership between church and science and followers of Jesus and the way of faith for the good of the world. Um, there's massive amount of research, uh, resources on BioLogos site, articles written by Rick himself. Um, you know, we want to spend a little bit of time on this subject so you can hear someone who knows what they're talking about talk about this, but there's so much more. And I would steer you to those types of articles written by people who actually know what they're talking about, which I, that's my follow-up question, Rick. So most of us are not scientists, obviously. Most of us don't even know where to look, and we end up learning about climate science by clicking on a Facebook article sent to us by Cousin Ed, you know, or something like that. And that's how we learn. 
And so help us in a world that, that we have so many voices and it seems like there's these divergent voices out there. Well, scientists really don't know or they're in it for their own you know, money or whatever the deal, all these different things. How do we cut through that? How do we know what voices to listen to? And then I, I guess the blunt question I have, could you be wrong? So, uh, okay, let's, let's deal first with who do we listen to? That's a really, really important question because you can find somebody to back virtually any solid or harebrained reasoning we come up with about the climate change issue. So, but I think the question for people to ask themselves is who is your trusted truth authority? Who is the truth authority on this? In matters of science, I go to the scientific organizations. So if I had, let's say, uh, a child that came down with leukemia and I wanted to find out what is the status of scientific assessment of leukemia and what's the best cure, I would go to the National Cancer Institute because I trust them as the most knowledgeable scientists dealing with that area. That's what I would recommend for people dealing or trying to explore and investigate climate change and its problems and solutions go to the scientific societies, not individuals. Don't rely on individuals like me or others that pop up on your news feeds, but go to the societies. There are 201 societies around the world that have published statements on anthropomorphic, anthropomorphic climate change. Of those 201, 198 support that thesis, that it's bad, that it's being caused by humans. Three are non-committal. Now, who are those organizations? Well, I would recommend people go to places like the National Academy of Science. Just Google National Academy of Science or EPA or the um, Ecological Society of America or the World Meteorological Organization. All of these are organizations that have published statements backed by hundreds and hundreds of scientists on these various topics. So National Academy of Science is probably your very best one. And it would three clicks and you'd be there. So that's what I would recommend in terms of how do we discern what is the best information. Could science be wrong? Absolutely. Could I be wrong? Absolutely. Science is not, as is viewed by many people, simply a body of a large body of complicated and static facts. That's not at all what science is. Science is the process of discovering what is true about our world. And so our scientific ideas change over time. Science is the process of uncertainty reduction. That's really what we're about. But there are some things in science that become so, so well substantiated, like gravity or like the Earth orbits the sun, that we no longer debate its reality. Every time we step into an airplane or walk across a bridge, we are trusting science. And that's the level which anthropomorphic climate change has reached within the scientific community. We know what the cause is. We know what it is going to take to fix it. Those are as, as strongly established facts within the community as one could get. Okay. Anthropomorphic climate change. Now you have a new phrase you can throw around at, at lunch today. <laughs> so what do you think about anthropomorphic climate change? You know, people are like, wow, it's impressive. I, uh, I almost had a heart attack uh, about six years ago. Many of you know that story. And yeah, that profoundly reshapes your life. And 
I was having tons of pain and I went in and they ran the test and suddenly I went to the top chart of all the charts that all the doctors I had their attention, you don't wanna be that guy, trust me. And uh, they went in and did the whole deal and they said you have a significant block in the Widowmaker artery, they call it that, cause like you can become, you, you can just keel over and die instantaneously and you need to do something about it, sir, or you're gonna die. And I remember uh, the scene like yesterday, Corey was not in town, my parents were there and the curtains were around us and I was wearing those ridiculous robes, the hospital gowns they haven't updated in like 100 years that you know have the, the yeah, they're just ridiculous. So it was just an embarrassing, vulnerable situation and there was a massive group of doctors gathered around me. I remember like it was yesterday and they're all in agreement that I had a massive black block in my artery and if I didn't do something, I was gonna die. And um, what if I would have said, well, thanks for sharing. I'm gonna go ahead and pack up my bags and head home and do my own research, right? And when I see that kind of mindset, what's the emoji that you see that's like, ah, oh. <laughs> right? And like, that's not biblical wisdom. Biblical wisdom, as you guys have heard me say, is getting like the 20 best experts in the room. And if 19 of them say the same thing, that's wisdom. Listen, don't listen to the one person, that's foolishness. And so that's why we're bringing Rick here today to listen to him. Um, so Rick, so we wanna, we wanna be people of hope. We are people of hope as followers of Jesus. Uh, God will make all things renewed. That's the promise. So let's, 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 let's move from despondency, if you will, to hope. I uh, know you're a person of hope. How can we have hope seeing what's going on? And then um, if you wanna tag on to that, what are some practical things we as followers of Jesus or even us as a church, a community of Jesus followers can do to be people of hope? Great, yeah. So first of all, I want to say that uh, I'm not a person of hope if we're defining hope as this Pollyannish optimistic attitude that somehow everything is gonna work out for good. But that's not the type of hope that scripture speaks to either, right? No, scripture speaks to rational hope. I love these words of St. Augustine where he writes, hope has two beautiful daughters. Their names are anger and courage. Anger at the way things are and courage to see that they don't remain as they are. So that's a very deep, nuanced and I think helpful, rational perspective about what hope is. I can see the world around me, lament, and then take up action to make sure that it doesn't stay that way or that things change for the better. And that, if, if that's what we call hope, and I think that's biblical, sure, we have plenty of reason to do that. I think that hope is something that we get after we begin acting. We don't have to wait for hope to initiate action. Once we start acting, hope sometimes follows. The theologian Rick, Richard Buckham writes about two kinds of Christian hope. He says there's ultimate hope. That's the unconditional final achievement of God's purposes for all of creation. And then there's proximate hope. That's the conditional uncertain work toward betterment of the world now. And that's the type of hope that we as Christians who are living out, working out for full gospel, the big G gospel, are involved with. There's no certainty of what we're doing uh, in, this, in this period. There's no certainty that, that our efforts are going to make improvements, but we're called to do it because we're disciples of God and because we love him and we love the world around us. So I think that's the larger context of hope that we as Christians need to be and, um, you know, uh, aligning with. There is also a lot of hope um, simply because things are changing. 
in many ways for the better. There's great advances in technology. Uh, organizations, governments, individuals are becoming more and more involved. So there is reason uh, and optimism that things will get better. My concern is, will they get better fast enough? So there we go. And I think there is one yeah, more component, well, yeah, let's one more to, aspect. Yeah, well, yeah, we're, we, you know, we're a community that, that we want to practice our faith. So yes, we, we right. always end every message uh, with like, okay, what do we do? We don't want to stay up in the idea realm and just sing pretty songs to Jesus and pray and go home. We right. want to be actively engaged of God's kingdom coming to earth as it is in heaven. So when it comes to this call of the gospel upon our lives to step back into our original iconic roles of ruling and caring for and cultivating God's word, being, being earth keepers, if you will. Right. What are some practical things we can do? Because I, I know, I, can, I guess I can't speak for everybody here, but they're probably a lot like me. I'm not a scientist, so it's overwhelming. And at times it is despondent because you, you see headline after headline and right. smoke and wildfires and rivers drying up. And you know, you just want to kind of burrow down and watch Netflix and eat Cheetos or something, right? You just want to kind of give up. So. What can we do? I don't want to be that kind of person. I don't want our church to be that. What are some practical, faithful steps we can take of rational hope? What would you recommend for us? Yeah, great. Yeah, great, great, great question. Um, I think I preface that by saying that, that we take care of the things that we love and we love the things that we are connected to. So a really important step that precedes creation care is creation connection, doing the very thing that you talked about at the beginning of your sermon, connecting with the world around us. I'll, I'll give you one practice. If everybody did this, it would be marvelous. It will take you less than one minute a day. All right? Psychologists tell us that we can literally rewire our brains by the things that we contemplate for an extended period of time. If you want to become a, a person that's filled with gratitude, take moments throughout the day when you experience something good and hold that thought in your mind for 20 seconds. Here's what I recommend. Step outside, look at the sky, look at a flower, look at animals, plants, look at the world around you. Once or twice a day, soak it in, hold that thought for 20 seconds. That's all it takes. And that will literally rewire our minds over time to be better connected to the world around us. And that hopefully will, will lead to appreciating and caring for those things. Now, uh, having said that, we need to educate ourselves. So find some good reading material, find some friends who would like to read that information with you learn to read about it and to talk about it. Catherine Hayhoe says that one of the best and the most important things we can do about climate issue is to talk about it with others. And then take small, intentional, practical steps. You can Google 100 things or 50 things or 20 things to do to improve the environment and you'll get all kinds of ideas. And so there's no, there's no lack of information available simply a few clicks away. Don't be overwhelmed. Identify one or two that you're going to do this month, one or two you'll do the next month, and do a slow, gradual progression to adjust your lifestyle. But also recognize that no matter what we do as individuals, it's not going to be enough. We need large-scale systemic change. That means changes at the level of governments and changes at the level of large international corporations. So, um, so that means voting. 
uh, and purchasing along those lines as well. So those, those are some suggestions. Great, thanks Rick. So to sum it up, one, he, Rick told all of us to take a hike, but in the best possible sense, <laughs> yes. right? See what I did there? Um, get outside. Like just, I mean, that's what I open with, right? The profound wonder that it evokes in me. There's moments I could pinpoint them and you, if you ask me about them, I talk way too long about them. There are moments of worship for me on the trail where I'll turn a turn and catch a sunset or a mountain or like a, a, a herd of elk galloping across the field. Like, it's just astounding what our God has created, the art gallery that we exist in. And God cares about that. And that's what Rick is challenging us. Jesus said, where your treasure is there, your heart will be also. God cares about the earth. We need to care about it. So I hear you saying, get out there. Notice, look at flowers, smell a flower. Take time to be outside when we become people that have become more and more inside folks. And then secondly, learn. You guys know how committed I am to that. Uh, Catherine Hayhoe, she's a Jesus-following scientist. I think she, she lists you in her book, I think. And I think we have a picture of that book coming up. This is a brand new book. So some of you are in the room and you're skeptical. You don't buy what Rick's saying. <laughs> you think he's wrong and, and somebody else is right. Fine, we're a community that's centered on Jesus. I'm so glad you're here. Push back, but be a learner. And maybe if that's you, and even if that's not you, read the book. She's a world-renowned scientist and a follower of Jesus. It's safe. She loves the Bible. She thinks it's authoritative, all that kind of stuff. All the boxes are checked. Just read it. Learn. Go to BioLogos. Learn. And then have conversations. Um, have conversations with me. Don't send Rick an angry email if you disagree with it. Send an angry email to me, but just be kind, not too angry. Just kind, but be learners. We wanna be a learning community, it's safe here. The most important thing is we care about uh, the earth. And I think that, I don't know that anybody could disagree with that if you read the Bible. Like we're called to care for the earth. Whether you think climate change is not human engineered and cyclical or whatever, we can all agree, everyone agrees it's getting hotter and like storms are getting crazier, right? And as followers of Jesus, we need to care for the world. So that's, that's where we can find common ground. Um, so Rick, um, would you mind praying for us? I would love that. Sure. Thank you. Okay, great. Thanks. Thanks for this opportunity too. Heavenly Father, we, we come before you now in just profound awe and deep, deep appreciation for the created order around us. Thank you for the privilege of basking in that, of seeing its riotous beauty and wonder and complexity and diversity. And forgive us, Father, for our individual and corporate negligence in caring for something that you deeply care for. And prompt us, Father, to become learners, to become better followers of you in the ways that we treat your creation, in the ways that we treat our fellow human beings, and caring for their environment and ours as well. I pray that you would empower us, that, you'd, um, that you would incite us to action, and that you would instill in us a deep sense of abiding trust and hope, and just that rational hope and courage to work for a better future. We pray these things in the name of the firstborn of all creation, Jesus. Amen. Amen. Rick, we love you. Thank you. Can we give Rick our thanks? Can you express your thanks? Thank you. Have a great day. Give your family my love. 
If you have any questions about today's message, you are invited to talk with Pastor John. You can find more information on our website, newhopepdx.org.